Welcome to Law Talk, a podcast series produced by the University of Minnesota Law School featuring events, webinars, and panel discussions about diverse topics at the intersection of law, policy, and education. This episode, the sixth annual MLK Convocation, Breaking the Dam Against Social Progress, reflects on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy and observation. Law and order exist for the purpose of establishing justice, and when they fail in this purpose, they become the dangerously structured dams that block the flow of social progress. The esteemed alumni panelists who participated in this year's convocation include Paul G. Feynman, Associate Judge of the Court of Appeals, New York. Todrick Barnett, Chief Judge of Hennepin County District Court, Minnesota. Pamela Alexander, Retired Judge of Hennepin County District Court, Minnesota. And Cassius O. Benson, Chief Public Defender of Hennepin County, Minnesota. Dean Gary W. Jenkins provides opening remarks, and 3L Marias Cabrera moderates the conversation. Minnesota Law Diversity and Belonging Affinity Council sponsored this year's MLK Convocation. This webinar was originally recorded on January 27, 2021. Subscribe to the Minnesota Law Podcast feed on SoundCloud or via your preferred podcast network for more Law Talk episodes as well as other podcast content produced by Minnesota Law. At this event, uh, those of you who have been here before know that we often use a quotation from Dr. King's body of work as a launch point or a touchstone to reflect on Dr. King's legacy and also to reflect on what those words mean for law and society today. This year's quotation is, law and order exist for the purpose of establishing justice. And when they fail in this purpose, they become the dangerously structured dams that block the flow of social progress. Now that quote comes from Letter from a Birmingham Jail, an open letter written in April of 1963. King's letter responded to another open letter uh, titled A Call for Unity that was written by eight prominent moderate and liberal clergymen in Alabama. Those clergymen all agreed that social justice uh, that social justice uh, exists um, uh, was critical, um, and certainly the uh, injustice um, uh, that existed in uh, Alabama at the time um, was was critical um, and important. But they also, at the same time, argued that racial injustice should be fought in the courts and should not involve community outsiders. They thought the civil rights movement was extreme and and they deplored the tension that it created. King's response letter reminds us of what civil discourse looks like. It exhorts us to distinguish just from unjust laws. And it explains while waiting for justice is a privilege that those who experience the affront of injustice can exercise. It puts justice at the center, at the core, at the heart of the matter. As members of the legal profession, we understand the critical importance of the role of law. We know it is essential to providing avenues for justice. We can all point to countless ways throughout history in which lawyers have used the law to gain justice for individuals and communities. Yet at the same time, we can also understand that our legal system manifests structural injustice, biases in administration, and complex challenges in how we define and bring justice for all persons. Now, Dr. King's words call on us to think critically about how our systems and structures, including the legal system, can act as a dangerous dam that blocks the flow of social progress. So educating ourselves on bias and racism, 
identifying structural barriers to justice, supporting a more inclusive legal profession, advocating for change in law and policy and other action are all important. And we can all, we all have a role in transforming how the rule of law can better achieve equity and racial justice. Here at Minnesota Law, we believe in a foundation of critical thinking and skill development about law and legal systems through teaching, research, and scholarship and engagement. Our faculty, staff, students, alumni, and supporters are called to continue the work of justice, to take action and to lead, and to make an impact in the profession and the world. Here at home and globally, I see our Minnesota law community working both within and continually transforming the legal system to expand justice. And today we are honored to have four of our distinguished alumni, four great lawyer leaders to inspire us and guide us. Joining us first is retired judge Pamela Alexander, class of 77. Judge Alexander worked for the Legal Rights Center and as a Hennepin County attorney, where she was the first African-American female prosecutor in the state before being appointed to the Hennepin County District Court in 1983. She retired from the bench in 2018. Judge Alexander, we are thrilled that you are here with us today. Welcome. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. And next, I welcome Chief Judge Todrick Barnett, class of 92. Judge Barnett worked as a Hennepin County public defender and as a prosecutor for the Hennepin County attorney before being appointed to the Hennepin County District Court in 2006. And effective July of 2020, Judge Barnett was elevated to chief judge, making him the first chief judge of color in Minnesota. Welcome, Chief Judge Barnett. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here today. Thank you so much. And our next panelist is Chief Public Defender Cassius Benson, class of 96. Mr. Benson worked for the Public Defender Service in Washington, D.C. and the Hennepin County Public Defenders before starting his own criminal defense firm in 2002. And earlier this month, Mr. Benson became the chief public defender for the Hennepin County Public Defenders. Welcome and congratulations on your new appointment. Mr. Benson, welcome. Thank you, Dean. I'm happy to be here as well. Great. And our final panelist is Judge Paul Feynman, class of 85. Judge Feynman serves on the Court of Appeals in New York, which for those of you who may not be familiar with the New York state system, that's the name for New York's highest court. Prior to serving as a judge, uh, Judge Feynman worked for the Appeals Bureau and Criminal Defense Bureau of the Legal Aid Society in both Nassau County and Manhattan in New York. A judge since 1996, he has served on the Civil Court of the City of New York, the New York Supreme Court, which is the statewide trial court, and the appellate division prior to his current post. Governor Cuomo nominated him to the Court of Appeals in June of 2017, and he has served on that court since then. He is also past president of the International Association of LGBT Judges. Thank you so much for joining us, Judge Feynman. Welcome. It's a pleasure to be here with you all. Now, today, our panelists will be led in discussion by um, our moderator, who is 3L student, Marilos Cabrera, who is from our uh, Diversity and Belonging Affinity Council. Um, she has prepared a number of great uh, questions. She's also uh, solicited and received questions from our law students. Uh, and so we're gonna have a great and rich discussion today. Before we begin, just a few housekeeping notes. Today's webinar is being recorded and the link to the recording will be shared via email to all registrants following the event. We have uh, live auto captioning enabled. So please check on the live transcript feature uh, at the bottom of your Zoom screen to view or to hide the captions throughout today's discussion. 
and we'll reserve time at the end for our panel to address questions submitted via, uh, via the Q&A uh, feature, which is found at the bottom of your Zoom screen. So at this point, please join me in welcoming all of our panelists and our moderator, Marielos, over to you. Thank you, Dean Jenkins, for that introduction. And thank you to our panelists for being here. It really is an honor to get to speak with you all today. Um, so before jumping into questions, I'd like to reread the quote that's grounding our conversation today because I think it's important to have it at the forefront of the conversation and to keep in mind the context in which it was written. So the quote reads, law and order exist for the purpose of establishing justice. And when they fail in this purpose, they become the dangerously structured dams that block the flow of social progress. So in the interest of time, I'd like to dive right into questions related to the quote. And my initial question is, was Dr. King right? Was law and order really created for the purpose of establishing justice? I think many students feel that law and order and justice rarely, if ever, go hand in hand. And that begs the question, were they really ever meant to? Um, cynically, it can seem that law and order may be used as a tool to control rather than one to promote justice. Um, so Judge Feynman, I'd like to hear your thoughts. Uh, how to unmute myself. Um, so like many things in life, I think uh, two things can be true at the same time. And I, I think that that's the case here. Um, and, and if you actually look at the quote, uh, it, it uh, recognizes that law and order uh, can in fact uh, be used to establish justice. Um, I know that that has uh, happened uh, throughout history as the Dean uh, already mentioned. Uh, and, and I think that using the courts, uh, it, it's one of the reasons I actually went into the profession um, uh, is often a viable tool uh, for justice. Now, of course, any system, uh, including courts and including legislatures and executive branch, uh, is dependent on the commitment and the good faith of those who are the legislators, the judges, and the um, executive. And, um, and that's where you get into trouble sometimes uh, with the second half of the quote, uh, you know, where he's pointing out that uh, depending on who's controlling those uh, institutions, uh, they become a dam. And um, like so many things uh, in life, uh, two things can be held true at the same time. Certainly. Mr. Benson, do you have something you'd like to add on that? Uh, yeah. In answer to you know the question of, you know, does law and order and justice basically do they go hand in hand? Uh, the concern that law and order is something opposite of justice. When one looks at the letter um, Dean indicated, the if one looks at just laws versus unjust laws, moral versus immoral, um, they definitely go hand in hand. It's, for example, in our context of, you know, what we do, you know, broad policy considerations such as, you know, caging people or jailing people disproportionately, um, meaning based upon their race, based upon the circumstances they're in, um, disparities in sentencing. And I think Judge Alexander and all the rest of us are very aware of the drug sentencing laws and how they uh, were, how they are now as well. Um, so in the idea of law and order in the context of what I believe Dr. King was talking, that there is um, law and order, is a, they're talking about just laws and, and orderly fashion and orderly application of those laws in both the creation of the law in that it benefits everyone and in the um, enforcement of the law. So as far as when law and order and the dams are created, it's a situation in my mind that uh, we're no longer dealing with quote unquote law and order. We're dealing with unjust laws. Um, 
in proper order. And basically order is in the, you know, as he talked about the timing of things, it's always better to deal with, you know, disproportionate sentences. It's always better to deal with, um, you know, the, the killing of people of color by police officers at a later date in a, in a more peaceful fashion. So in looking at it, uh, I can easily see how a student may feel that, you know, they never were meant to go hand in hand, but if you go back to the beginning of it, uh, definitely, I think his quote is accurate. And when you look at the whole context of his letter, it's still uh, applicable today. Great. So if law and order can represent a dam to social progress, have we reached a point in time where the dams are starting to collapse? In other words, we're at an interesting point in time where racial tensions are high, general faith in law enforcement is low, and every day the media is exposing hypocrisy in our government and division amongst our citizenry. Um, do you think that this will lead to a point in time where the dams can start to collapse, um, or will these dams merely be reinforced or repackaged? Um, Judge Alexander, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Um, thank you, and I'm I'm anxious to give you my thoughts. One of the things that I think that we need to look at, um, and I look back at uh, Justice Thurgood Marshall, who said that you know law is ever changing. It is uh, also something that we, with uh, a legal education, can figure out how to move forward. Um, I think uh, you know everybody is looking at this point in time as being uh, unique. It really is not, and since I'm the only one on the panel who was alive and a whole adult during the 60s and do remember um, the marches and some of the things there that are very similar to what's going on now. So if we don't know our history, obviously we're bound to repeat it and we are repeating this because we didn't get it right then. And so I'm hopeful that we will get it right now. Um, we know that laws have to apply equally to everyone. It has not been that way in the history of this country. And now I am anxious for this new group uh, and all of you uh, law students who are moving forward to figure out a way to make sure that we make the Constitution really apply to all. And uh, to do that, uh, we can make strides. There were a number of strides that were made uh, after the riots in the 60s. There was many um, laws that were changed and things that were done. So it does not have to necessarily be a dam to progress. It can actually open the floodgate to progress if we have the more authority and the moral um, uh, fortitude to get it right. And I think right now we need to get it right. Judge Barnett, would you like to add anything to that? Yes, you know, I think Judge Alexander is exactly right about, you know, our history and looking at the dams that, um, Dr. King talked about, right? I mean, when we think about our history from the first time that slaves started to revolt against their master, you know, you look at the Native Americans fighting for their land, or you look at our civil wars or civil rights movements or Me Too movements, or, you know, we look at the death of uh, George Floyd and many others um, all the way up to the day. I agree with Judge Alexander, history's repeating itself, but each time it seems like we're pushing on these dams for social uh, progress. And sometimes it crumbles a bit, um, and like Judge Alexander is talking about, you know, sometimes we can open these gates um, and start to make uh, more progress. Um, I, I really do think that this time is different. I think that um, we have many more non-people of color joining peaceful protests. I think uh, other people besides people of color are asking for change. Um, I agree that we have a number of younger people demanding more from his lead leaders. People are waking up to the notion that social progress benefits all of us. And it seems like each time that we get to this point, we're still asking for respect and human, you know, uh, dignity for folks. Um, and so I really do think that the dams are collapsing and it's a matter of whether or not um, it's gonna collapse fully or it's gonna come back in a different form. 
So um, those are my thoughts. Thank you very much. Yeah, so if, if the dams are collapsing and we're moving towards social progress, I'm curious to know, Mr. Benson, what are your thoughts? If we are having meaningful social progress in 2021, how do we ensure that law and order starts to look and feel more equitable? Um, are there tangible changes that are need to be made? Are there, um, what are some of the biggest dams that are blocking the social progress right now? Okay. Sorry, let's go to the biggest, I think the biggest dams in the context of what Dr. King was talking about. Um, I think there's a consensus and, you know, George Floyd has actually obviously been mentioned. Um, in that vein, I think there's consensus among people that his killing was wrong. If you look at, you know, I think if you hit issue a poll, majority of people they say it's wrong. Um, the consensus as far as, or at least looking at the dams and law and order as a matter of how, does, how do we go with law and order to show or implement that consensus to say, okay, how, how are we gonna stop this? Uh, I think in a large section um, of the community, while they say it's wrong, there's also, a, um, it's tolerable. There's gonna be is there a reaction that's going to stop such things. Um, when we look at, I think if we look at the law, like we look at the laws and whether we look at what is it, what is just about the situation versus what is not just. In this case, it would be just to, um, for example, federal prosecution in addition to state prosecution. That's that's one tangible thing that could be done. But that's, um, I think when we look at how, in this case, people of color are treated, and we expand it beyond even George Floyd. We look at the, um, let's say we've used the term mass incarceration before. I will just give you a, a practical example in what we see in Minnesota. Uh, we see with there's been a bail reform movement, but we see a large number of people being held in jail pretrial. We see a large number of people uh, unnecessarily having monetary bail placed upon them. It affects um, certain communities more so than others. So there's a number of things that we agree as a people, you know, that this is wrong. Um, but the question about the impediments and the dams is like, not only what we're going to do about it, but how quickly we're going to act on it, how sincerely we're going to act on it, and how people are going to understand that maybe they'll be inconvenienced in what their worldview is. But we're going to go ahead and say, you know what, we're not going to cage people. We're not going to uh, unnecessarily hold somebody for a property crime. Um, all of these matters... And why I started, I suppose, with the George Floyd situation is that in 2021 here, um, I don't know how much progress we're going to have. I agree with both judges, or <laughs> Judge Alexander and Judge Barnett, that there are positive changes that have been made. There's social, um, uh, there's a desire uh, from the young and everyone else to say, we're going to go in and make these changes. But we're also kind of waiting to see what happens in this case, you know, that hit Minneapolis hard. We're waiting to see uh, what the reaction will be, what the you know, law enforcement efforts will be. So um, in, in a certain way, that is holding, you know, kind of we're in a band's kind of waiting and having a pause. But we also have to look at the other matters that are directly affecting, um, in my case, you know, clients from our office um, and these other social issues. So uh, there's a method we're making progress. I think I was just wait you know, end of 2021 and see how much progress that actually is. Wonderful. Um, I think it would be a missed opportunity not to discuss the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Um, I think that many students and citizens alike pointed out differences to the response um, of the attack on January 6th um, compared to the response to Black Lives Matter protests at the Capitol. Uh, additionally, after the attack on January 6th, we saw a lot in the media and social media that um, the United States is not like this or that the attack seemed like something that would only happen in the third world country. And certainly there were those that um, pushed against that notion and urged that this should be a wake up call that the United States is in fact flawed. Um, Judge Alexander, I'm, I'm curious to know what you think of all of that process and where we go from here. 
Um, I think that there has uh, been a misconception that the United States has not been built on violence. It definitely has been. And so I think that people really need to start to take a real hard look at um, what we have been doing uh, and in the past and how it is really manifesting itself now. There's always been a vast difference between how people of color have been treated in the country under the law and how um, others have and how rich people uh, and more fluent and powerful people have been treated as opposed to um, poor folks and, and the, the people that uh, Mr. Benson's office um, uh, represents. And so we have always had a differentiated uh, uh application of the law uh, toward people of color. And actually, it's been on the books. So people can go back and look at those cases and know that it's true. Uh, segregation really wasn't ended until it, it was ended in my lifetime. So it's not necessarily something um, that I'm, I'm speaking of uh, uh, metaphorically. It's something that I actually saw li and lived through. Uh, sometimes I sit back and think about, you know, how could people even accept segregation? I'm not even gonna get back into slavery or the black holes or anything that was actually uh, tremendously horrific, but the United States has always had this in its past and in its history and has not really taught it well. And that's why I said in my beginning remarks that if you don't understand understand your history, you're bound to repeat it. Now I think that um, uh, hopefully um, the young people are opening their minds to the fact that we are built on a flawed system. And the only reason that the system will work is if we have the will to make it equally apply to everyone. And we need to have that will right now. There is no reason to treat people differently. Um, and I'm very curious, especially after this uh, assault on the Capitol, to see if, in fact, we let the rich and powerful off again with no accountability, whereas if we know if if I had done it, I would be dead right now. So the problem is, is that the powerful and connected should not have one set of laws and people of color and poor folks have a different one. We, we have to have an actual system of accountability. I'm waiting to see what this Congress does because it is gonna tell us loud and clear whether or not uh, we're gonna treat everyone equally under the law, which includes accountability or not. And so um, we also have to really face the fact that we are we have never been a, a perfect country. We have always been a flawed country and we need to work toward fixing those flaws. If I, if I could just uh, pipe in for one second, um, and, and that's just uh, um, I do agree with uh, much of uh, if not all, uh, what the judge just said. Um, but that said, uh, uh, she made a reference to the elimination of uh, segregation, and I, uh, I'm, I'm sure she meant de jure uh, uh, segregation, because we all know uh, that de facto uh, segregation is alive and well. Uh, it is. And, it is. Um, and, you know, um, without getting into politics, uh, you know, uh, as a sitting judge, um, when you make an appeal uh, to people about the safety of your neighborhoods and, and, and what that's going to mean, that's an appeal uh, to maintain de facto segregation. I wholeheartedly agree, Judge. <laughs> You know, um, I think part of this discussion uh, when we talk about the Capitol and other things um, in Dr. King's uh, letter uh, from Birmingham jail, um, one of the things that I found um, interesting and, and applicable to uh, what we're seeing now is that um, he, he said that uh, that uh, those people or, or those of us who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of tension. He said, we merely bring to the surface the hidden tension that is already alive. 
And, I, and that's what we see. We know that under the surface, there's a lot of tension. And Dr. King in that letter talked about um, that, that this brings it out to the open to be dealt with. To, it brings it out to the point that you can't ignore it. You have to talk about it. You have to do something about it. And so um, one of the one of the things that that uh, he he said in that letter um, was about exposing these injustices and bringing light to the human consciousness. And, and that's what's important in that we're always going to have tension when we are looking to have progress, social progress, as we move that forward. So thank you. Yes, thank you. And as, as I've been thinking about this a lot, I think your point on exposure is, is very true. I mean, I think there is a real um, danger of dismissing these incidents that we've had as just being unlike us or othering that. Um, it's a real part of, of the moment in time that we are at. Um, so moving on to our next question, I think that many students feel conflicted by wanting to reform the criminal justice system or um, the legal community more in general, but also struggling with feeling that by choosing this profession, uh, we are complicit in a system that is often intrinsically not equitable. Um, so what advice would you have for those students um, who are struggling with this or how to make sure that we aren't uh, accidentally complicit by the time we get there? Um, Judge Feynman, if you could start us off. So, so this is an old question, um, you know, do I work from within or from without? And I, I think people have to find uh, where they feel that they can be most effective. Um, obviously, I, I don't think it's about being a lawyer or getting a legal education because I think that that can help you regardless of whether you choose to do it uh, as an advocate, uh, you know, with an organization, whether you choose to do it, um, you know, as a, uh, a lawyer who just takes on particular clients and causes of action, uh, you know, uh, certain causes uh, through your client, um, or, you know, uh, to be perfectly frank, when I left uh, the public defender, or what is the equivalent of the public defender uh, in New York City, um, I, I first went to work for a, a judge, uh, and, you know, and then ultimately sought to become a judge. You know, I was a law clerk for about seven years uh, to a judge. Um, and there's a real difference uh, between being an advocate and sort of being the judge or being the judge's law clerk. And one of the reasons I did it is because certainly as a trial judge, and this has changed over the course of my career, but as a trial judge, I certainly felt that I had a lot of power and influence uh, to try within the confines of, of the statutes and the law to uh, achieve justice. What happens as you uh, sort of go up the, the chain of command, if you will, of course, is uh, your jurisdiction changes, your constraints changes. The, um, and, and, and so, you know, when I got to the intermediate appellate court, it was about error correction, but, you know, giving sort of leeway to the rulings of uh, trial judges. It's like recognizing, well, you know, there's not only one way to do things. And, if they haven't really uh, committed legal error, you know. But the other thing that was true in our intermediate appellate court was that we had interest of justice jurisdiction. Um, now I'm in the Court of Appeals. We have no factual review power. We have no interest of justice jurisdiction. Um, this is not necessarily true in other states. It depends on how your uh, constitution and your uh, judiciary law are written. Um, and 
it's actually very confining. Um, and I actually felt in many ways I had more power to achieve justice as a trial judge than as a, uh, you know, a judge on the high court. And of course, uh, to get anything accomplished in a intermediate or uh, high court, you need to bring along a majority. So um, not always easy. And you tend to do it in baby steps uh, as opposed to if you become an advocate uh, or a legislator, you can do things in much broader sweep. We've had significant uh, uh, bail reform legislation in New York. We've had significant criminal justice reform. And, uh, and, and now that their legislature now has a um, absolute veto-proof majority in both houses, uh, people are expecting 2021 to bring even more uh, criminal justice reform. But I, I would also emphasize, uh, because there has been a lot of discussion of, of, of criminal justice here, uh, so many of these issues go right across the board into the civil justice world. Um, and, you know, whether it's housing, whether it's... Uh, uh, you know, access to benefits and, and just food and, and things that you need for uh, daily living. So I think I'm probably way over time. So, um, but I, I do think that becoming a lawyer uh, does not necessarily mean that you can't work in some fashion towards social justice. Um, and that's true even for those of you who decide to go the big law route. Uh, um, you know, a lot of our backgrounds, uh, as far as I know, uh, from what I heard, are, are in the public sector. But uh, some of the best cases that are argued in our court on behalf of uh, poor folk and others are, are done by pro bono lawyers. Um, uh, so everyone, everyone can do something. Um, you can't do it all, but you can do something. Uh, and, and that's what I would say. Use your legal education to do something to make the world a better place in this country, a, a more just country. What I would add to that would be um, you can't make change if you're not in the room. So if you're not in the room, you certainly can't do anything. And so uh, use your legal education in, in, in a way that can uh, promote and advocate justice. Um, uh, as judges, obviously, there were certain things that you can and cannot do. Uh, I did leave the bench for a while and did head the Minnesota Council on Crime and Justice, where we made a lot of um, uh, legislative changes and a lot of um, uh, changes to uh, legislatively and through the executive branch. And it was, uh, it was very rewarding for me to be able to lead that organization uh, and to make those very positive changes. Uh, however, I was a criminal defense lawyer. I was a prosecutor. There are things within those offices that can also be done uh, that can um, um, move justice forward. So you can use your legal education in many, many ways, but you certainly cannot do that if you're not in the room and you're not hearing the discussion. Uh, I was able to obviously work on the race bias task force as a judge. I love that experience. We did make some very meaningful change um, and made a number of recommendations as to how the system can improve. And I know that uh, Judge Barnett is continuing with those efforts uh, as well. And so I think that there are so many things that you can do, but you certainly cannot do it if you're not allowed in the room or to, or to raise those issues. So I would say grab your legal education, jump in and try to do whatever you can to improve the system because you're the only ones that can really do it. But that's Judge Alexander. That's what I think here um, in Hennepin that's apparently different is that um, historically we've talked a lot about these issues with no action. And I think now um, uh, what we're seeing is that um, these discussions um, from all of our justice partners um, are happening 
and they're they're saying, okay, so now what do we do? What can we do? And I think we see more engagement with um, the community, more of an appetite to be proactive and not reactive. Um, and that's what I that's how I've, that's why I think that that we're at a different point in in uh, where we where we're going in the push for social change uh, from within. Um, I think that um, this work is not for everyone. Um, uh, some people might feel more comfortable um, in a different setting, um, you know, and, and like Judge Alexander talked about, you know, making change within the prosecutor's office, making change within the public defender's office, uh, probation, um, you know, the courthouse, you know, it's it's like uh, Judge Feynman mentioned, you know, where do you feel you fit where do you feel comfortable to make that change? Um, and, and you might feel differently in the future, but where are you now to be helpful? And, um, you know, one of the things that we know is that you have to speak up. And uh, uh, in Dr. King's uh, letter again from Birmingham, he talked about that. And he talked about the fact that, um, he he was afraid that he would not only have to repent for the hateful words and actions of bad people, but the appalling silence of the good people. And so um, wherever law students are or non-law students are, uh, it's it's speaking up to um, make change. And, and I think that um, the late... Uh, Representative John Lewis, you know, said it best, and that is, you know, never be afraid to make some noise and uh, get in good trouble, but necessary trouble. So um, uh, I think that's where where the law student, what the law students should think about. If I should, uh, can, I add, could, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. Thank you. Um, yeah, if I could add as well, I concur with the sentiment of the other panelists. Um, I want to address this, that the concern about being complicit in the system, uh, it is not an equitable system. It's, um, but as Judge Alexander said, you know, you, you can't make any changes if you're not in the room or in the system. And we have, um, you know, I've been a trial lawyer, a criminal defense lawyer all my career. Now I have the pleasure of leading an office of excellent criminal defense lawyers, but whether it's the private defense bar, whether it's the public defender, whether you join the system as a prosecutor and try and make changes that way, whether you're issued a judge, um, it is completely uh, a requirement. If you want to make an inequitable system equitable, uh, you've got to be involved. So if you're not in the arena, you know, I'd say, and to echo what Judge Barnett just said, um, remaining silent, not trying to address the issue, uh, you become maybe even a bigger problem. If you look at the letter from Dr. King, uh, that might be the bigger problem being moderate and not taking a position. Uh, so I'd add that. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add uh, anecdotally uh, what's going on in New York. So um, we, we uh, in the aftermath of uh, George Floyd, our chief judge, uh, uh, appointed uh, Jay Johnson, uh, who obviously was, uh, among other things, Secretary of Homeland Security uh, in the Obama administration, to undertake a uh, systemic operational study of uh, the New York courts uh, and, and examine issues of um, uh, systemic racism uh, both in our procedures and, and whatnot. And he issued a fairly comprehensive report in October. Um, and those are being fully, you know, with recommendation being fully endorsed by the chief judge and uh, undertaken. But the point is, uh, you know, you have to get all the participants uh, in the criminal justice system 
and, and that wasn't just a report about criminal justice. It was a whole system, civil, family, you know, everything. Um, uh, you need to uh, get all your participants actively involved. And one of the uh, wonderful things that uh, I've been lucky enough to do is in the summer, there's a, a, a separate uh, task force called the Justice Task Force in, in New York, uh, which is specifically criminal focused. Um, and it was created not by the current chief judge, but her predecessor uh, to deal with the issue of wrongful convictions. Its scope has expanded um, and um, there are some wonderful changes that have come about, uh, including uh, and what they do is it brings together prosecutors, defense lawyers, uh, both uh, public and private. Um, and it brings together the police uh, and uh, other uh, law enforcement. It brings together victims' uh, rights groups uh, and, and representatives of all the participants uh, in, in the criminal justice system. And there's a lot of disagreement, uh, but ultimately we make recommendations. And they can be recommendations to the chief judge, to the legislature, to the executive. Happily, many of those recommendations are taken into account uh, and, and have led to such as changes in uh how you interrogate and videotape confessions, things of that nature. But it was by having all the people in the room, as Judge Alexander said, uh, and, and having all of those people at the table, that that's happened. Um, and it just so happens that well before George Floyd and before I became chair, they were tasked by the current chief judge of looking at the issue of racial disparities uh, uh, whether it's in charging, sentencing, uh, pre-arrest, uh, pre-arraignment, diversion program. And, and, you know, we're working on a lot of recommendations. We just made a, a whole series of recommendations uh, regarding what's called the summons process in New York City, um, which uh, things such as uh, uh, for drinking alcohol on your stoop and, and laws that are clearly just the numbers make clear uh, 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 are being enforced disproportionately against people of color. What I found in, in dealing with these uh, new, you know, my new role of, of meeting with it, there are people who are dedicated to uh, making it a more equitable system in the prosecutions, uh, the various prosecutors' offices, in the police department, in all of the agencies that are involved, um, and it's a matter of bringing all that goodwill together uh, and having a seat at the table, as Judge Alexander says. So sorry that went on long. No, thank you. That was that was all wonderful and, and gives yeah. me hopefully you can read about it. Uh, they have their own website, uh, the New York Justice Task Force. Uh, can read about what we're up to. Well, wonderful. That gives me and I hope other students a lot of hope that that there are um, meaningful ways that we can impact the legal system upon entering it. Um, on that note, we are now transitioning on to student questions. And um, students, you're encouraged to put them in the Q&A. Um, otherwise, I saw one question here that um, Mr. Benson started answering. So if you want to talk about that and others can jump in. But the question was, how can law schools prepare law students to help make necessary changes in the legal system? Uh, Mr. Benson, why don't you start us off? Um. Yeah, what I believe is that law schools, not only giving you the academic education, but the opportunities um, through either clinical or practical experience, um, opportunities that will allow you to, uh, and take advantage of the opportunities to engage with, with the clinical programs. They give you access to clients, give you access to the community at, um, that allows one to see um, what, you know, the communities who are affected by, you know, this inequality. Um, to have that access and to get um, 
a firsthand look at what changes need to be made. And the, the law school is an excellent place for that. Obviously, there's an excellent clinical program. Uh, the social justice things are doing programs like this. The opportunities are there. So that's what law schools need to do. Um, and law students, I would say, need to take advantage of the opportunity to engage not only legally with education, but also with the community that's affected. If anyone else would like to jump in with thoughts, feel free. I would agree uh, that uh, everybody should try to get involved in some clinic. I'm always amazed when I get my uh, alumni magazine uh, from the law school about all the wonderful things that have uh, been done through the clinics and through uh, other uh, organizations at the law school, whether it was immigration related, whether it's uh, you know, uh, public defense uh, or public prosecution. Um, uh, so I, I just keep at it. Um, and I, I think that is a valuable, valuable experience. I, um, uh, one of my former clerks, uh, who's a Minnesota grad, actually I've had two Minnesota grads as clerks, um, uh, that they, you know, will both tell you that whether it was their summer internships uh, or their uh, experiences uh, with the clinics, those were valuable, not only for understanding the law in the abstract, but for understanding how it applies to people's lives. And, you know, I have said this many times, I used to say it when the intermediate court here does the swearing in, not the high court of, of new attorneys. And so when I would have the opportunity to address uh, newly admitted attorneys, um, I would explain that in my view, the law is a helping profession and that is, their obligation, uh, uh, whether it's you know through what they actually do day to day or through pro bono work. I would also encourage law students to get involved with nonprofits in the area that really deal with uh, these particular um, uh, would that deal with disadvantaged communities. One because that gives you a, a different perspective uh, from what you may uh, see in your everyday life or what other traditional kinds of uh, 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 summer and legal internships and clerkships give you. Uh, I think um, some of the local nonprofits will give you a different uh, eye and you can really see and still help move the community forward through that uh, avenue as well. So uh, everybody is not necessarily going to uh, get a you know, a judicial clerkship or something like that. But, you know, I clerked at the Neighborhood Justice Center, the Legal Rights Center. Um, I had many clerks at the Council on Crime and Justice. So there's other places that you can go uh, that will give you a very rich uh, education and background that you can take forward and take with you uh, throughout your career that will kind of hone you toward the things that you feel passionate about. So first of all, figure out what it is you're passionate about. And then second of all, act on it. Thank you. Sometimes figuring out what we're passionate about is the hardest part or what we're not passionate about. Um, so, uh, Judge Barnett, I, there's another student question here that I'd like to put your way. Um, would you please address the role of prosecutorial discretion in criminal justice reform? And if the other judges have thoughts, they can jump in. Uh, being a former prosecutor for a short time is huge. Um, you know, being able to, um, for instance, uh, not pursue criminal charges prior to them ever entering the system is huge. And it's only as good as your boss allows you to do it. And the reason I say that is it doesn't make a difference if I'm not going to charge the case, if they take it down the hall to someone that will. So um, being able to have that discretion is just huge. And how we use it um, equitably is important. 
Uh, and so um, I think it's a powerful tool that prosecutors have. Um, I might, I'm going to add a little bit to that because I think uh, I've, I've given a lot of thought as to um, prosecutorial discretion, how that works. I was also a former prosecutor for, for a short period of time as well. I do think that that needs to be examined a lot because um, we need to really take a look at uh, how racial disparities are creeping into that discretion. And so that needs to be studied and examined and we need to make some, uh, I think some changes need to be made around that. Uh, it, it, it is extremely powerful, but it can be used powerfully in the wrong way, uh, as well as ways that it could be right. So we definitely need to make sure that um, prosecutors understand their oath, which is to carry out justice regardless. Uh, and that means not charging cases that don't need to be charged, as well as charging cases that do. But we also have to make sure that we're not doing it in a racially biased way. And I think that that's something that prosecutors across the country are talking about right now. Uh, there's a number of them that are um, uh, examining that. I talked to a, a judge friend of mine in Cleveland who uh, was telling me about some reform efforts on their part in Ohio. So I do think that this is something uh, that needs a lot more discussion. And um, I think the way that you um, go about it can make uh, can make all the difference in the world. So we have to be sure, however, that we're being just and equitable to everyone. And I think uh, that is something that needs to be looked at. Yeah, one of the things that we're finding in our justice task force uh, has to do with diversion programs, a, a pre-charging diversion program. Um, and um, part of the, the problem uh, is that it is very easy uh, for racial disparities to creep in uh, because, uh, and that partially depends on who makes the decision to divert. So up in Albany uh, County, you know, the police officer pulls you over on the street, uh, whether it's a motor vehicle stop or something else, and it's the police officer who, uh, they have this program called the LEAD program, who can say, you want to go off uh, to, you know, get alcohol, whatever, uh, some diversion program. Um, and I'm not really clear how that's monitored. Like, well, who does the officer decide? Uh, uh, is it just the, the white people he pulls over? Is it everybody? Is it uniform? Um, so, so there are, you know, uh, diversion is great, uh, but it, it has to be done equally and, and, and whatnot. And then we've been looking around, we have 62 counties, we've been surveying them and uh, yeah, there are other, there are real, uh, I'm sure this is true in Minnesota too, real difference in resources between cities. Uh, so places like Hennepin County uh, and rural communities that just, uh, because of how our things are funded here, a lot of it's done at the county level. Um, and, and, and so you get into these disparities uh, based on uh the resources of the prosecutors so like new york county manhattan has a lot of resources for diversion uh and making sure you know and dealing with the digital divide because a lot of their diversion is done digitally uh, um, because they have great resources from their forfeiture aspect programs. Uh, and they, you know, the DA, the current DA, Saivan, has uh, chosen to use a lot of that money for diversion. You go up to a rural county, they don't have that. And, and so there's a lot of inequity built into the system uh, for how things are funded. Uh, it's very complex. Um, but uh, I remember as a young public defender being told more than once by, um, to follow up on uh, Judge Burnett's uh, comment, uh, you know, I would say, really, you're going to do this? You're going to make 
this person, you know, get a record over this, uh, you know, a bunch of socks, uh, that, you know, um, and I just, uh, the answer would be, um, I'm not, you know, my supervisor won't let me offer anything less, you know. Um, so, so that is absolutely true. What Judge Burnett says, prosecutor discretion partially depends, particularly for young assistants, on who's overseeing them. Um, Thank you. I want to be sure that we're being respectful of everyone's time. Um, so. We have the other questions copied and the responses to those might be shared in a post-event email next week. Um, but I think at this time, we're gonna have to cap student questions. So I'd like to thank everyone for attending the University of Minnesota Law School's sixth annual Martin Luther King Jr. Convocation. I wanna give a huge thank you to our panelists for being here and dedicating their time. I'd like to thank Dean Jenkins as well for his participation in today's event. This podcast has been brought to you by the University of Minnesota Law School. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And subscribe to our YouTube channel for more Minnesota Law stories, news, and information. To subscribe to the official Minnesota Law podcast channel, please visit soundcloud.com backslash Minnesota Law or find us on your preferred podcast network. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the University of Minnesota or the University of Minnesota Law School. None of the content should be considered legal advice.